Welcome to the latest edition of the Freshfields podcast. My name is Kate Cooper. I'm a partner in our M&A team based in London. Today's conversation is going to look at the type of corporate governance issues that typically trip up tech founders. Now, all tech startups around the world want to emulate the success of their Silicon Valley counterparts. And I am delighted to be joined today by Sarah Solom, uh, the managing partner of our Silicon Valley office, and Pam Marcolese, also from our Silicon Valley office. Sarah and Pam advise some of the biggest names in the Bay Area, and they can share some insights with us on how these issues are viewed on the West Coast. So welcome, Sarah and Pam. Sarah, first of all, I'd be interested in your view, having advised as many companies as you have, on where you see founders really needing advice as they start to grow their companies. The number one thing that comes to my mind is I think back on the last 20 years of working with founders and founder-led companies has to do with control. Founders worry or maybe don't worry early enough about losing control of their companies. Um, you know, Pam and I both spend a lot of time working with companies that are going public. And in some of those situations, founders have retained control. Um, and by control, I don't necessarily mean, you know, having more than 50% of the vote, but having extra contractual or other arrangements that support their ability to keep running the business in the direction that they are planning to run it. And so, just to get more specific, I know of many founders who wish that they had put in place structures like dual class stock earlier in the life cycle of their companies so that by the time they go public, uh, they don't find themselves without um, the ability to help steer their company in the direction they're hoping for. So I would say it's never too early to start thinking about whether dual class stock um, might make sense for your company if it's a founder-led company. And of course, I shouldn't assume that everyone knows what dual-class stock is, but dual-class stock is a structure where certain holders, perhaps founders, perhaps others, have more votes per share than others. Absolutely. And, and Pam, from your perspective, how do you think about dual-class structures? Obviously, there are lots of companies we can think of where dual-class structures have drawn quite a lot of interest from investors when those companies are maturing and coming up to market. Uh, I think that's right, Kate. And I think that dual class structures need to be taken in the broader context of the company itself. I think that some informal polling of certain investors would suggest that they are not altogether opposed to dual class structures. But it is definitely the case that there are some investors out there that don't very much like them. I think that done correctly and thoughtfully, you can definitely minimize some of the criticisms that dual class structures can attract. So for instance, if you take it within the context of the broader governance structure and you look at the board, if the board is composed of high quality, independent, diverse members, I think that that very much helps to reassure investors in terms of the governance of the company. If you look at some of the other structures in the company and you look at the robustness of some of the processes and procedures that the company employs, I think that can be very helpful as well. 
And fundamentally, if investors understand what exactly is being protected by the dual class structure, I think that's also helpful. So you can have a situation on one extreme where all it seems like is that you're entrenching the control of the founder and rendering the founder impervious to external influences. And I think that's one of the situations where the dual class structure doesn't go over particularly well. On the other end of the spectrum, you could have a situation where the founder or the group of founders is really focused on a mission and investors understand the value of the mission and understand the value proposition and also understand some of the pressures once you become public from activism and other short-term investors that can really put pressure on the accomplishment of that mission and can be quite detrimental. And in that situation, it's much more palatable because what's being protected is really the carrying out of the mission as opposed to the entrenchment of the founder. What I would add is the features of the dual class structure itself can be relevant. So for example, you can have some structures where the dual class doesn't sunset or the dual class can be passed down to the founder's heirs. Those kinds of structures are obviously more challenging from a governance perspective. On the other hand, if you have dual class structures that do sunset, dual class structures that can be put into trust arrangements or estate planning arrangements, but whenever the founder passes away, the dual class also goes away. Those kinds of things also tie the dual class structure much more to the founder and the mission as opposed to really being in perpetuity. At least in our world, in the tech technology world, the thought is the long-term aspects of dual class are well worth it because they allow these companies to really pursue that long-term vision. There are certainly lots of places and times along the way where a company could be sold uh, or could could take other actions to maybe maximize cash flow or do other things that activists might want to see, but those things may well get in the way of the longer-term vision that the founder and frankly other long-term holders want to see. And as a private company, The truth is often you don't necessarily need it because most of the venture capital funds are looking at your company with a long-term vision. But to go back to a point I made earlier, it's just harder or can be harder to put it in place the further down the road the company is because many companies stay private much longer. So by the time they're going public, um, a founder's stake in the company may well be quite small. When we think of the traditional company that comes to market in the UK, we think of those companies uh, as having a single class of ordinary voting stock. So normally you find that you will have founders in the stock, but they won't necessarily control the company. And there are also specific rules around having to make mandatory offers for the company if you control over a certain percentage in the UK. And so you end up having discussions actually about is a dual class structure workable on a particular part of the London Exchange? So you could obtain a standard listing where you could have dual class voting. And then over time, as the company is more mature and more sort of ready for the premium segment, that stock can collapse into ordinary voting stock and the company can step up then uh, into the FTSE 100, for example. Just thinking again about areas where you've seen founders come back and say, gosh, I wish I'd known this. I wish I'd had some advice around this earlier. 
One of the things I think we see when we look at tech startups in Europe is difficulties around related party transactions where there have been transactions over the course of the company's life cycle with the founder that have been on terms that when you look at it through the lens of really corporate governance best practice, you have to think whether they were indeed in the best interest of the company or were they in the best interest of the founder. And these are questions that we see founders having to ask and wishing perhaps that they had thought ahead on those points earlier. Have you seen that as well? When a, a company is earlier on in its life cycle, oftentimes on the board of the company, you have people who are very close to the founder. Um, sometimes they are also other founders or employees on the board. And you also don't have some of the rigors of a, of a real public company with all the processes and the procedures in place. And so sometimes it can be much easier to say, here's this transaction, it's convenient. Um, we need to do it. And it gets approved quite easily because there really isn't anybody who's taking a broader look at it and it makes sense in the moment. I think that to the extent that that transaction then needs to be disclosed publicly when the company is doing its IPO, it can look a little bit differently when looked at through the public lens. And so taking a, a broader view on some of those things and having a little bit of a longer lens and wondering, well, how will this look if it has to be made public, I think can be one of those things that's also key to think about. And to my mind, it really does go to an optics slash reputational consideration. I agree. And I think that, you know, it may well be the case that a transaction with a related party is the best thing for the company to engage in at a particular moment in time. And I think, you know, in hindsight, what you will hope you can say about that transaction is, um, we went into it eyes wide open. And by we, I mean, the board was aware of it. And if, for example, it's a related party of a founder, that the founder director recuses him or herself from the transaction that approved it, I, I highly encourage a company that is thinking about a related party transaction to bring it to the board and to have the board look at it and, and adopt whatever protocols seem appropriate at that point in time. Certainly as a public company, one would have the director who's related not take part in the ultimate decision on whether or not to enter into the transaction. And and there's one more thing I wanted to mention here, just again with the longer lens of what this might look like down the road. You know, sometimes private companies are just getting going and, and they hire relatives, right? Relatives of the founders. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but at least in the U.S., if the CEO or one of the other executives or directors family members are employees of the company, you could find yourself surprised by the fact that that person's salary, even though they're a lower level employee, might need to be disclosed and their, and their equity arrangements might need to be disclosed. And I've seen many CEOs be very surprised that that's required and um, unhappy about it, but also, you know, of course, not willing to have that employee leave the company um, who happens to be a relative. So just any time close businesses or family members are involved with your company, there'll be a different level of scrutiny applied and perhaps skepticism applied, even if it's unfounded. Absolutely. And on the flip side of that, I find that we also have conversations both with our financial sponsor clients and who are looking to invest or are invested in founder-led 
companies and also with founders themselves about the liquidity rights that the founders might have at any given point in time. Now, this is a real tension, uh, especially if you're looking at a company that really relies very heavily on that founder's vision and the mission, Pam, as you were saying before. And how have you seen the dynamics of that discussion play out and be resolved in in, in companies that you've dealt with? So I think, interestingly, oftentimes the founders don't have a lot of leverage in these kinds of situations, or especially in the beginning. And so these decisions are just made in a way that gets the deal done. I think that over time, the founders do have a little bit more leverage or can have a little bit more leverage, but I think there then the shareholder base gets much larger. And so it gets more difficult to sort of negotiate um, these kinds of liquidity rights down the line. So there is definitely a tension that arises, but I think that it really winds up coming down to the, the individual circumstances of any particular transaction and then just trying to figure out what is actually possible, just given the all of the relevant uh, factors. I, I agree. You know, the investors want to see that the founder or CEO has skin in the game to be kind of crude about it, that they don't get out before the investors get out. And so in my experience, founder liquidity is not a contractual right so much as it is uh, a discussion a negotiation, but more of a discussion with the board. And I think there would often be limits on how much the board would be willing to, or, or investors would be willing to allow the founder to sell. You know, perhaps it's, well, up to 5 or 10% of your position. We understand, you know, you've put all of your eggs in this basket and you're probably taking a very small salary. And so they may let the founder get some liquidity, often in connection with a fundraise uh, for the company. But it's often not baked into the investor documents, but more of a negotiation um, over time. Also, I think what's relevant is as you get closer to your IPO, some of the disclosure requirements then kick in and require you to disclose some of these transactions. And again, thinking about what this will look like as part of the marketing process as the CEO or other executives are trying to exit the company as the company is preparing to go public, the messaging on that can sometimes be very difficult or delicate at the very least. And so I think that becomes a relevant factor as well. As companies grow, I think it's interesting to see the changes that they undergo on the corporate governance uh, side and uh, how their attitudes tend to develop over time. been working with a number of companies who have felt that they have had to become quite proactive in terms of addressing any shortcomings they might have had in things like their tax planning structures or their approaches to regulation uh, in order to get themselves to a place where they can really be the serious investment opportunity for big investors who are coming down the track in later rounds of funding or perhaps on approach to an IPO. Have you found in Silicon Valley that the same process of growing up takes place? I mean, there are certainly companies whose whole purpose 
uh, and mission at some level flies in the face of existing re- regulations, and that's that's the whole point of the company. And that that company knows going in that they'll that part of what they're doing is to change laws. That and that can be well understood, and I think investors understand that. But then there's the other scenario where a company just hasn't invested enough resources in complying with existing regulations, and that's not necessarily as transparent to investors. At some point, companies need to start worrying about global regulations that apply to them, whether it's foreign corrupt practices or export controls or, I mean, there's a whole host of things that companies need to worry about and that sometimes are underinvested in early on. Also, sometimes when you have companies that are in regulated spaces, it is hard for a small company to comply with all the regulations the way a more mature company would. So there is also just a natural ramp up there. But as the company gets larger, also it starts attracting more scrutiny from the regulators. But as it approaches its IPO or, frankly, any other kind of an exit or even additional investors coming in that are sort of more late stage investors, there's a different risk profile there that's applied to the company. And so that's when it starts to become increasingly important for the company to sort of step up compliance with those regulations. So there is very much a natural maturation of that process. It's interesting your point about the risk profile. It's one of the things that we see is around founders who maybe need to be aware of how their company is going to progress in this space over time because it really does create a situation where you can have some personal liability if you don't have the right compliance processes in place at the right moment in time to progress uh, in the public space certainly. I think that's right. And I think the other piece, too, that can catch people off guard and going back to what Sarah was saying is just the global nature of some of these things. If you think about the example of privacy, which is in the news all the time, it's very easy to become subject to a whole host of global privacy regulations just by the nature of the many of these businesses. And that is a huge compliance effort, but that is also very important. And so this can it can happen very quickly. One thing I think is worth talking about, maybe we're going to come to this in a bit, but like I think the tone set at the top of a company, um, tone at the top, you know, gets talked about a lot, but it really does make a big difference on the culture of a company and how everyone below the CEO carries out the mission of the business. They may not always be able to dot every I and cross every T earlier on, but the tone that's set makes a big difference. If it's, here's our approach to complying and we're going to always do the best we can, that's one thing. But if it's a, no, we don't have time to worry about all that and let's just, you know, forge ahead. And and if the tone is, we don't take all those regulations seriously, then that's a very different matter. Um, And I I think the outcomes can be very, very different um, and ultimately affect their, the, the company's success or not. Right. And and it's certainly been the case that there are some high profile examples of significant management changes taking place once a company is public or once it has gone through a certain level of funding where the investors have the ability to call the shots in a way that they don't uh, in much earlier rounds. Have you seen companies struggling with that and CEOs struggling with that um, process themselves? I think, you know, it's just, it's funny. Yesterday, Pam and I were talking with a, a PR firm 
And so um, I'm going to borrow a bit of what they said because it, it really rung true to me. Um, it is very hard for a company to lose the early stories that come out about a company's culture, especially if it's salacious in any way. So I think there's so much to be excited about for many of these companies as they get funding and the media loves a hero and they often want to write a lot about the founders and that's great. But I think if you are the founder, focusing their story on the business as opposed to you as the founder yourself is probably a good idea. And again, not to over-lawyer things, but I think I, I worry a lot about founders or others from young companies who talk about all their hopes and dreams for their company in a way that is uh, that has metrics associated with it early on because, you know, sometimes they don't meet all those things and then it can be harder to live live down some of that. So all the attention is, is a double-edged sword. It's, it's a great thing, but um, once a story is out there about a company, then it, it's out there and... If it happens to be negative or can be spun negative, whether it's a cultural thing or if it looks like the company's somehow wasting money or it looks like it's the piggy bank for the founder, then that will haunt the company down the road. And if there's too much of that, um, a founder could find him or herself you know, not in the driver's seat by the time that they're raising new money or going public. If you were advising any founders listening to this podcast, <laughs> what else should really be top of mind when they are bringing new investors onto their boards or into their companies? I think one of the things that should be top of mind is how will it impact future investors, so investors that come after the current ones, because I think that some of the terms um, that get negotiated with any round of investors will then create dynamics on subsequent rounds of financing. And I think it's really important to think about that. The other thing I think of is bringing in advisors, whether those are board members or, or actual other executives, bringing in senior people who have experience either in your space or in an area that really matters to you. You know, founders are visionary and they're looking to change things often, and that's great, but I also think it's helpful to founders to have, again, board members or senior executives who have maybe more experience in a particular space to bring that perspective early on. Um, many times companies wait until they're going public, for example, to build out their boards, and the comment I often hear is, why didn't I do that a few years earlier? I could have benefited from that person's perspective. That seems like a good place for us to pause and reflect. Pam, Sarah, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, it's been fascinating to hear insights from the Bay Area. So thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thanks, Kate.